Good morning, everybody. If you would, open up your Bibles to the uh, book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. And this morning, we're going to begin at chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6. Now, Exodus chapter 6 begins with Moses and the people of Israel after an extended time in their slavery in Egypt. They they were in, in Egypt altogether more than 400 years, and not all of that time was a time of slavery, but an extended period of it was. And, and God moved through Moses to come and to confront Pharaoh, that, that wicked king who held all of Israel in bondage. God led Moses to go and confront Pharaoh and say, on behalf of the Lord, to let my people go. And Pharaoh absolutely steadfastly refused. And this was a tremendous discouragement, not only to Moses, but to all of Israel, because not only did Pharaoh say no, but he made it worse for the children of Israel because the request was even made. If you remember from the past chapters we looked at, that was the whole, you have to make bricks, but I won't give you the straw. He increased the burden upon Israel. And how was God going to deal now in the midst of his tremendously discouraged people? To give you an idea of how discouraged Moses was, take a look, look, look at the last few verses of Exodus chapter 5. That would be verses 22 and 23. Let me read that to you. It says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Moses here is is discouraged. He's perhaps a little bit angry with the Lord because God told him to do something and it didn't go easy. It didn't go smooth. And now Moses is very discouraged in the midst of it. Look, I'm I'm so happy to take a look at this text this morning because sometimes a, a preacher or a pastor has to sort of think about, well, how will this text apply to the lives of the people who listen? And friends, this is something that applies so readily, so easily, that anybody here can grab onto. Because either you have been discouraged, you are discouraged right now, or you will be discouraged. It's just part of life. And it's part of the Christian life as well. Look, I know it very well, just me being a pastor. Look, today, I'm, I'm wonderfully encouraged today. I mean, I'm so happy on Sundays. It's a wonderful opportunity to get together with you, to worship together with God's people, to be able to talk to people who seem to want to hear it, you know, from God's word. It's a wonderful opportunity. No, for me, like a lot of pastors, often my day of discouragement could be Monday. Monday, after it's all over, maybe got a little bit of adrenaline come down from Sunday, and you just start thinking, man, God, did you do anything yesterday? Did, did, did you speak to anybody? Did you use me at all? Was anybody touched? Was it just in one ear and out the other, on and on? I'm not saying every Monday's like that, but certainly some of them are. Now, if I know what it's like, certainly you know what that's like in your own way. So this idea of God speaking to his people in the midst of their discouragement. Friends, I'm not just talking about theological ideas. I'm talking about something that you can really grab onto. And notice it. God's going to do it in three ways. He's going to address Moses's and the children of Israel, their need, in three ways. First of all, he's going to give them words of encouragement. Secondly, he's going to reaffirm the covenant that he made with them. And thirdly, he's going to give Moses and Israel more of himself. He's going to tell them who he is 
in seven amazing I will statements. So let's just sort of unpack this in the chapter that's ahead of us here. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is after Moses' outpouring of discouragement. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. I love how God phrases that in verse 1. He brings his word back to Moses. And what does he say? He says, Moses, you're so discouraged because that meeting you had with Pharaoh seemed to blow up in your face. You don't know what to do. You don't know what I'm doing. But let me tell you something, Moses. Now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. You've seen that you have no power before him. But you're going to see what I begin to do. And God wanted Moses to know that that he was going to come through and God was going to show himself to be God in this very situation. You see, you could say this, that Moses' whole problem was that he was too impressed by Pharaoh and he was not enough impressed by God. Pharaoh and and all he represented was too big in Moses' mind and God was too small in Moses' mind. Friends, this is so relevant to you and I. This is so common for us, for when we find ourselves in the midst of some difficulty, some uh, bondage, some habit that we can't shake ourselves loose of, some unforgiveness, some whatever it is, you just fill in the blank. And I'm not going to keep going through a big, long list. You just fill in the blank for whatever it is in your life. Oftentimes, when we feel so defeated and so discouraged in the fun of those things, it's because we make that thing, that Pharaoh, so to speak, in our life, we make it so big and we forget how big God is. Now, if you just want to analogize it over to your life, if you want to represent that thing that just sort of is your cause of torment or difficulty, represent that as Pharaoh. Look, who cares how big Pharaoh is? Maybe you're overestimating Pharaoh. Maybe you're underestimating him, just to use the illustration. But it just doesn't matter. Your real problem isn't Pharaoh. Your real problem is that you don't think God is big enough. So why don't you just get your eyes, your mind off of whatever it is that's your source of so much discouragement, so much uh, just desire to give up and, and just forget about it all. Why don't you put your eyes on the Lord and let him show you just how great he is? When you begin to see God in his greatness, then all those other things just look so small by comparison. And that's exactly what God was doing now in the life of Moses, in the life of Israel, lifting up their vision about who he really was. Well, notice he says it right there in verse 1. He says, for with a strong hand, he will let you go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Now, notice this. Before Moses had asked Pharaoh, please let my people go. That was God's word to to, uh, Pharaoh through Moses. Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. Not at all. And now Moses feels defeated. Now God's telling Moses, let my people go. He's going to drive you out of the land. It's not going to be that he just lets you go. That would be one thing for Pharaoh just to release his hand and let you go. No, he is positively going to push you out of the land. Moses, you have no idea how great this deliverance will be. You have no idea how God is going to triumph in the midst of this. You're so discouraged already. And what an amazing grace-filled message that was for Moses. Moses felt defeated, discouraged. God says, you don't even know how great the victory is that I'm going to win on your behalf. Now, after announcing that, God is going to take Moses to school just a little bit, starting at verse 2. Because Moses wondered how God could do this. It seems so completely impossible. 
That before when Moses, excuse me, before when Pharaoh wouldn't even open up his hand, instead he's going to actively push them out of the land. How is that going to happen? Again, the answer was for Moses to know more about God, more about uh, uh, him and how great he was on his throne. Not more about Pharaoh, not even more about Israel, more about himself. The real answer was for him to know more about God himself. Before I tell you, I just need to really bring this home, and I hope I can really set some thinking straight in your mind. But listen, sometimes we talk about theology and theological ideas and all the rest of it, and sometimes in your mind that might seem so very distant for you. Might be interesting facts, things you can store away in your mind. Maybe if you're in some trivial game where they ask a question about the Bible or theology, maybe you can win the game with that answer. You sense it has no connection to your life. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. The reason why you remain in that bondage, the reason why you can't get over it, the reason why you're not walking and living in the new life that Jesus has for you, the reason why you don't have that sense of forgiveness and assurance in your life, the reason why all those things and dozens more is because you don't really understand who God is and how great he is in your life. That the last thing in the world you thought you needed was a theology lesson. But I'm telling you, that's exactly what you need. Although you don't necessarily need it on a chalkboard and with an exam and all the rest of it. But you need to know, not just in your mind, but in your heart, in the depths of your soul, how great God is. How much he loves you. How faithful his promises. And how loyal he is to his own covenant. I like something that F.B. Meyer said right along these lines. He said this. He said, when all human help has failed and the soul, exhausted and despairing, has given up hope from man... God draws near and says, I am. Now you're ready for that revelation of God. Now you're ready for him to show and explain and teach you more of who he is so that you can trust him. That's exactly what it is. Look at it. Start it there at verse 2. It says, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Moses, just for a minute, would you forget about Pharaoh? Forget about how great he is. Would you forget about yourself? Would you forget about Israel? You're thinking about all these things, but you're forgetting who I am. Moses, I am the Lord. It's as if God was saying this. I know who Pharaoh is. Now, I know the fake gods of Egypt. I know Israel and all of their fears. And, and I know you, Moses, and I know all of your doubts. But you know what? I don't care. I am the Lord. And I'm going to keep my covenant and get this done to you. I just think that that's a message from God for some people here this morning. You've got to focus on all sorts of other things. You're thinking about this problem. You think about yourself. You think about all these other factors. You think about all the wrong things. God just wants to step into the midst and say, hey, what about me? Do you remember me and how great I am? Do you remember me and how I've triumphed in your life before and in the lives of so many people around you? God just wants to shake it up and interrupt it right now. That's exactly what he was doing for Moses, saying, I am the Lord. And look at it as he continues on now, starting at verse 3. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Here, God emphasizes that he appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, 
But by my name, Yahweh, or Lord, I was not known to them. Now, Yahweh is what we would call the covenant name of God. And God is telling Moses and through him all the children of Israel that they're going to see the covenant of God and the God of the covenant in a way they never have before. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, oh, they knew of the covenant. The covenant promises were made to them. But to Moses and this generation here in Exodus, the covenant's going to be fulfilled. That's quite a difference between the two, is it not? Between the making of the promises and the keeping of the promises. And God says, you're going to know me in a whole different way that not even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me. You're going to know me in such an intimate, revealed way because you're going to know me as the God who keeps the covenant and fulfills the covenant. It's a whole other dimension of God's understanding and God's revelation of himself. You see, it's a good thing, as it says in verse 3, to know God as God Almighty. By the way, do you know the Hebrew for that? God Almighty is what? It's El Shaddai. Isn't that beautiful? El Shaddai. God reveals himself as the Almighty One. The the, the one who's surpassing in power and authority and glory. And that's a wonderful thing for you to know him as El Shaddai. And I hope that you do. But you know what? There's something even greater than that. Something even beyond that. It's as if, yes, let's begin with that. That I'm God Almighty. Get that set in your mind first. Now, I want to reveal myself to you as the God who keeps the covenant. The God that you can totally trust. Now, how well do you know him that way? How well do you know the Lord as someone that you can really trust, that you can look to in your time of difficulty, that you can look to in your season of despair or discouragement? When you know him that way, it changes everything in your life. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, the supreme need in every hour of difficulty and depression is a vision of God to see him is to see all else in proper proportion and perspective. That's what Moses and the children of Israel needed. They needed to see God in a way they never had before. And again, I know I'm being somewhat repetitious this morning, but you know why I'm being repetitious? Because I think this is very difficult for us to get through our thick skulls. We come into it thinking that the problem is a dozen other things. The problem could never be that I don't understand enough about God. But God wants to turn around and say, no, 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 you begin with this. You begin with who I am and my greatness and my love and work out from there. And you'll see how things ordered after that. You remember, he says it right here in verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. I am a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. You can rely on me. Start with that and work out from there, and you'll see what a difference it is. Now, that was God's message to Moses. It's as if God sat down eye to eye with Moses and explain this to him about himself. Now, Moses, are you feeling more confident? Now, Moses, is your trust beginning to revive back in me? Yes. Okay, Moses, now I want you to go speak to the children of Israel about this. Now I'm not speaking to you. Now I'm speaking through you to the children of Israel. Look at it here, verse 6. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. 
Then you shall know that I am the Lord who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Isn't that thrilling? Moses, this is the message that you need to deliver to Israel. God went to the furthest lengths possible to establish and confirm his covenant with the children of Israel. And you know what he gave here? I don't know if you know. I don't know if you're counting. I don't expect you to be. But God gave seven I will statements, seven I will promises that with those things collectively, sort of a perfect number seven there. He says, I'm going to do it. You can absolutely count on me. And if you think about those seven glorious I will statements, I'm going to say something bold here. I don't believe that those seven I will statements were just for Moses to deliver to Israel. And I'm going to say this boldly as I can. I believe that those seven I will statements are promises that God wants to make to you right now today. I think that they apply to you. Shouldn't we look at those just for a moment? Listen, if you could, I want you now, as I say these things, I want you to listen past me. Oh, I do want you to listen to me, of course, but I want you to listen past me. I want you to listen to what God would say to your very heart through these very I will promises. You ready for this? Verse 6. I will bring you out. You're trapped where you shouldn't be. And if you follow me, you can come out of it. I will rescue you from their bondage. You're in bondage to this or to that. And you've lost all hope of true freedom. But my promise remains. I will redeem you. You, you need a rescuer, someone to pull you up from the pit. And I have purchased your freedom. Verse seven. Now, I will take you as my people. You need a new identity greater than any before. You need to see yourself first and foremost as my child. I will be your God. You're done with all those false gods and idols. It's now time to begin a new relationship. Verse 8. I will bring you into the land. There is a new life that awaits you now among my promises, a true land for you to live in. And then finally, I will give it to you as a heritage. These changes are for real and they're lasting. They're your inheritance. And ladies and gentlemen, not because I think that I have any special authority, but because I believe that the word of God has all authority. I'm here to tell you now, I think that there was just some absolutely prophetic God-ordained words for people here in this congregation through that. There's people here, right here, right now. You need to hear that like someone who's dying of a poison and needs an antidote. This is your antidote. It's the antidote for your depression and your discouragement. It's the antidote for the bondage that you've been in. It's the antidote. And I'm not saying to to, to make everything in your life good and happy and pleasant every day, but to be the turning point on which the old is left behind and now the new is in front of you. And it all centers around this, you understanding who God is and what he wants to be in your life. Ladies and gentlemen, these promises are so certain that without getting into the technicalities of the ancient Hebrew, the, the, the wording here in the grammar is in the past perfect tense instead of the future tense. More literally, 
If you were to translate from the Hebrews, you wouldn't say, I will, because that speaks of the future. That speaks of something that God is going to do. More literally, what he said in the Hebrew is, I have and I will. God is so certain about this in the lives of his people that he announces it as if it's already done. It's done. And this is what God has for you. It's as if God has it in his outstretched hand for you to receive by faith, for you to take it and to say, Lord, there may be a dozen things that I don't understand this, but I know I need it and I need you. I humbly come before you to receive whatever I have to give, whatever you have to give to me. That's an incredibly powerful thing that God stands right before you now, revealing himself to you through these seven amazing I will statements. And then he concludes it all. Did you see that in verse 8? He concludes it all by saying, I am the Lord. It's like bookends. At the beginning of it, he says, I am the Lord. At the end of it, he says, I am the Lord. Just so you don't forget who it is. It's the covenant-making God, covenant-keeping God, who announces himself by name. Listen, can you imagine how dramatic it was that when Moses delivered that message to the children of Israel? Oh, listen, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Israelites there in Egypt at this time. So I don't presume for a moment to say that Moses spoke to each and every one of them. But certainly he spoke to them all through the representatives. And there's the representatives, the elders of Israel gathered together and Moses delivers this message to them. Moses himself had been so discouraged, but God spoke to him and shined the light of his encouragement on him. And now Moses is pumped up. He's got that encouragement of God flowing in his life. And so he comes up and he says, okay, here's God's message to you, children of Israel. And so what do you think verse 9 is going to say? Don't read it. No, eyes up here. Don't look at it yet. Please work with me on this. What do you think verse 9 is going to say? Verse 9 should say something like this. And Israel believed the word of the Lord. And they said, thank you, God, that you're the covenant-keeping God. And yes, we're going to see Pharaoh get thumped. Just anyway, something like that. I mean, that's what it should say, isn't it? It should be something like that, how glorious it was for Israel in this situation. But friends, I tell you, verse 9, sometimes I wonder if it's not the most depressing verse in the whole book of Exodus. We're going to run across other ones, but this one is bad. Look at it right here, verse 9. Now you can look. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Ladies and gentlemen, when I read that, when I understand it, it would almost make me weep. It would almost make me weep to think that God offers it, right? He, he gives it out to you. He gave it out to the children of Israel with an outstretched hand, with an open hand saying, here, receive it. And they pushed God's hand away. Why? Because they were so beat down from centuries of slavery that it just seemed too good to be true. They felt they couldn't trust God. They, they, they couldn't give him the faith that they needed to give him. And so what does it say right there in the text? It says they did not heed Moses, but verse 9, because of anguish and spirit and cruel bondage, they pushed the open hand of God away. It could have been theirs right then by faith. They could have received it. It could have been like a healing lotion to a troubled soul. But instead, they pushed it away. They said no. And how did they do it? They did it out of anguish of spirit. In the ancient Hebrew, that's a very powerful phrase. The idea of anguish of spirit is something like a deep anguish that would prevent proper breathing. Ladies and gentlemen, put in your mind a child who's sobbing and can't take a proper breath. 
You've seen that, have you not? They're so shaken, they're so disturbed that they're, they're crying, they're sobbing, and they can hardly breathe in the midst of it. That's where Israel was at. And I, I wonder if there's not a few who are like that here this morning. It's as if God offers it to you. His hands are outstretched. They're open. But you have known this slavery so long. Because, I'll just use the words of the text, because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage, you say, no, Lord, it's not for me. It might be for the people around me, but it's not for me. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you with the authority of Jesus, if you'll believe it and receive it, it's for you. You don't have to be uh, trapped in this cruel anguish of spirit, in this bondage any longer. And this text so powerfully speaks to me the reason that we need to have our hearts, our minds, our souls transformed. To, to me, it brings the reality of Romans 12, 1 and 2, all the more before us, where Paul said this, that we must not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ladies and gentlemen, when God holds his hand outstretched with exactly what you need and you push it away, you need your mind transformed. There's, there's, there's something wrong. There's a disconnect there. I don't know if it's in your body. I don't know if it's in your soul. I don't know if it's in your spirit. I don't know. But there's something that needs to be restored, something that needs to be changed. Now, let, let me tell you how verse 10, if I was writing the Bible, and let's thank heavens that I'm not, but if I was writing the Bible, let me tell you how verse 10 should read. Verse 10 should read something like this. And God said, forget it. Let's give it another 40 years. Maybe a new generation will come up. People who will finally believe me and trust me, forget it. Isn't that what verse 40 should read? Excuse me, verse 10? No. Look at what God says in response, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. Isn't that beautiful? Get back there. Get back in the game. If you want to use a sports analogy, you know, it's like they're playing the game and they're losing terribly at halftime. I don't care what you want to say it is. Soccer, football, you know, basketball, whatever it is. They're getting creamed at halftime. And, and no, we can't go out there. We're just going to lose again. Get out on the field, God says. Go, get out there. You do it. I'll start again, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize how significant this is? God says to Moses, get back in the game. And Moses says, no, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Now, there's something here that's subtle but very important. Here it is. Before when Moses said no, his excuse, it's recorded in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, his excuse was this, I'm not eloquent. Now his excuse isn't I'm not eloquent. Now his excuse is I'm too much of a sinner. I'm a man of uncircumcised. And, of course, he's using circumcision there 
figuratively to speak of his speech, of his mouth, as representative of the whole conduct of his life, as being impure and unclean. No, I'm of a man of uncircumcised lips. Now, do you catch the difference here? Before he said, I'm not able, I'm not eloquent enough. Now he says, God, I'm too much of a sinner. I wonder, I wonder how that relates to you and I. Here it is. I've used this illustration. God holds it out to you. His hand is open to you. His hand is full of love. He opens it right out before you and you push it away. And why do you push it away? Ladies and gentlemen, you may not even be aware of this in your life. But I'll tell you, one major reason, I'm not saying it's every reason, but one major reason you push away that open hand of God is because you know you're a sinner. You know you fall short of God and His glory and how wonderful He is. You know... Whether or not you recognize it, I don't want to get into some big psychological theory of the subconscious and all this, but I'm saying whether you're aware of it or not, there's something in you that knows you're not worthy of this. And so you push God's hand away, just like Moses tried to. It doesn't matter if you're not worthy. Jesus Christ makes you worthy. Jesus Christ says, I will use you. I know who you are. I know your failings. You come to me in faith and I will use you. That's what he says there in verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command. Not a suggestion, a command. You go and you speak to Israel. You go and you speak to Pharaoh. This is what I call you to do. This was God's will. It wasn't a suggestion for Israel. It wasn't a suggestion to Pharaoh. This was a divine command that would be accomplished One way or another, you get back out there. Now, after Moses' expression of discouragement there in verses 12 and 13, if you look at the end of the chapter, starting at verse 28, here comes another expression of discouragement from Moses. But in between verses 14 through verses 27 are some genealogies. And this might make you scratch your head. You say, okay, the genealogies are important. I get it. God wants us to know this happens to real people in real places. I get this. These people had names. This isn't, you know, fairy tale. I get all of this. I understand how in verses 14 and 15, it's talking about the descendants of Reuben and Simeon. Then in verses 16 through 19, the descendants of Levi. And then all the way 20 to 27, one of the families of Levi, the sons of Koath, descended from them. And how Moses and Aaron came from them. They say, I get all that. But why here? Why insert it right here? You've got discouragement, genealogy, and then discouragement again. You know what? Who's writing this? Moses is writing this. I think Moses wanted to put a little separation between his two expressions of discouragement just so he didn't look quite so bad. So why don't you get your minds off my discouragement? Let me tell you about some genealogies for a minute, then we'll come back to it. And we're not going to read through the genealogical text, not because it's not important, not because, uh, because time is sort of ticking on. We need to move through the text here. And plus, let's face it, a lot of these names are hard for me to pronounce. But, <laughs> but please understand, this is what he's listing here. He's listing first the, the sons of Reuben and Simeon. Then he talks about the descendants of Levi. And then he talks about the descendants of Levi as they come down to the family of Moses and Aaron. This was very important for establishing a priestly lineage. But look at it now back to Moses and objections again. Verse 28. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. 
But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh heed me? Lord, I know you have this for me. I know you have it for the people of Israel. But, but I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. How can I receive this? Let me tell you some very, very good news. You can understand the answer to that in a way that Moses never could. Now, Moses, won't you look ahead through the centuries? Won't you look ahead, you know, 1,500 or so years? Look ahead to that, Moses, and I'll tell you what you'll see. You'll see one of the children of Israel who's descended not from your tribe of Levi, but a man descended from the tribe of Judah. You'll see a man who's an heir to the kings and the royal line of Judah in the tribes of Israel. And you'll see that man hanging on a cross who laid down his life, not as a victim of circumstances, but willingly. He laid down his life as a substitute for sin. Moses, look ahead through the centuries and you'll see that man you'll see that man hanging on a cross providing the perfect substitution to where he bore all the guilt, all the shame, all the hesitancy and unbelief our sin is associated with, and he bore it in himself on that tree. You see, you and I can see that with a clarity that Moses never could, but we can see it. And God invites us to see it. Now, friends, I don't know why we would ever push away God's open hand towards us with all those glorious I wills saying, I'll give you what you need right now. But one reason we push it away is something deep inside of us says we're not worthy. Do you know what the cross says to you this morning? It says, I know you're not worthy, but receive it anyway. All your unworthiness was satisfied by what the father transacted with the son upon the cross. So look to Jesus. Look to him crucified and risen again in glory for your life, for your new life. Ladies and gentlemen, this draws us just to the place where we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop trying to rationalize it. I'm going to stop trying to excuse it. Now I'm just going to sit back and believe and receive what you have for me. In a moment, I'm going to conclude my time with you here this morning with a prayer. But in the midst of that prayer... I'm going to give an invitation for people who want to give their life to Jesus Christ. I'm pointing this directly, most pointedly, towards people who have never given their life to Jesus Christ. They've never said, Lord, I repent and I believe. But you know what? I think there may be other people here. You've done that at some time in the past, but you feel like you've fallen so far away from that that there's just something absolutely compelling you this morning saying, I've got to do it again. In just a moment when I pray, I'm going to give forth an invitation for you to do that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that if you want to receive that and pray that prayer, I'm going to invite you to stand right where you're at. Just as a demonstration of your faith in the Lord. But friends, I would just plead for you. Here it is again, the open hand of God towards you. God's not going to force it upon you. He'll allow you to receive it. He wants you to choose right now him. But if you refuse, what can you say? Can you honestly say after this morning that you've never heard? Can you honestly say that, that, that there was never an opportunity given to you for you to free yourself from this bondage? Well, free yourself? You're not freeing yourself. You're accepting the liberty that Jesus brings to you. But you can't say that because God offers it to you right here, right now. And once you believe it, once you receive it. Can we pray together? 
Father in heaven, now with reverence before you, we come to you in prayer. And we simply say, Lord, if Moses should have understood these things, if the children of Israel should have understood them, how much more should we? We who are the the grateful recipients of so much more of the understanding of who you are. Of what you came to do because you revealed it to us in your perfect revelation of Jesus. So now, Lord, at this time in this place, we just simply say. Move upon us now, Lord, move upon hearts to believe in you. Move upon hearts to receive you at this time in this place. So while eyes are closed and heads are reverently bowed in prayer. I just want to give that invitation right here, right now. If you know you need to receive this new life in Jesus, if you're willing to repent and to believe. I'm just going to simply ask you to stand where you're at and then I'll lead you in a brief prayer. I'm not asking you to stand in any way to embarrass you, but to give you some point of demonstration to say, yes, Lord, I'm serious of this. So who here this morning would do that? God bless you. Who else here? Bless you all over the room. Other people here who would like to do this, you'd like to receive this. Bless you, oh God. Father, you see them standing. Who else here? Thank you, Lord. Bless you. I'll give just a moment more for anybody else. Now, those of you who are standing, I'd just like you to pray this prayer with me. I'll pray and pause. You can repeat it after me. You can repeat it in a quiet voice, but I please would ask that you would say it, not just think it. Say it, even if it's in a whisper. Pray after me. Lord Jesus, I want new life in you. I want to leave behind my old life. And I need you to forgive my sin. I want to turn towards the new life you have for me. I want what Jesus did on the cross to be for me. So forgive my sin. Give me new life. Because this is what you promised. put my trust in you and in nothing else. Thank you for the new life in Jesus Christ. Amen.